Hey everyone, we're back again from the AUA 2018 live course library. 043IC, Novel Agents and Concepts in the Management of Hormone. This course will include a short didactic lectures followed by case presentations to give attendees an understanding of many of the new FDA approved agents, as well as an existing standard therapies for advanced prostate cancer, both non-metastatic and metastatic CRPC. Particular attention will be devoted to sequencing the new agents and positioning them as compared to the older existing therapies. The cost effectiveness of new and existing agents will also be addressed. This podcast and the others from the AUA 2018 course archive are available for CME at university.auanet.org. I think we're going to go ahead and get started uh, just so we try to stay on time. We have a lot to cover. Thanks everyone for coming. My name is Judd Mao. I'm a urologist at Duke University, and uh, this course is on uh, castrates or hormone-sensitive and castrate-resistant prostate cancer. We have uh, our faculty, Dr. Larry Karsh and Dr. Chris Sweeney, and uh, we'll be introducing them in a minute. I'm gonna. The way we're gonna work this is that uh, the first 15 minutes or so. I'm, I'm going to present a couple of cases, and we have audience response, just to try to get everyone thinking about this, and then we'll have a chance to hear the didactic talks. This is the agenda, again, the first 15 minutes or so, just discussing some cases. And I, I have three representative cases, one hormone-sensitive, uh, one M0 CRPC, and one M1 CRPC. And then Dr. Sweeney's going to talk about hormone-sensitive disease, and Dr. Karsh is going to talk about castrate-resistant, and we built plenty of time in at the end for questions and answers. Uh, Looks like we're a fairly small group right now, so we may just also be able to take, if you have a burning question as we're going through this, we can try to do our best to take that. Learning objectives is related to, again, advanced, basically advanced prostate cancer, hormone-sensitive, and castrate-resistant. So this is, we'll call this a mock tumor board on three representative cases just to get us started thinking about this. First one is metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, M1, hormone-sensitive CAP. Uh, This is a 60-year-old African-American male who was referred for a PSA of 125. He denied voiding symptoms. He had a low AUA symptom score and a low bother index. Past medical history is what you'd maybe expect for a 60-year-old man, hyperlipidemia, colon polyps, herniated disc, hernia repair. His father was diagnosed with prostate cancer at age 60, status post-brachytherapy, brother with prostate cancer, status post-radical prostatectomy. He's a non-smoker. Performance status is 100%, BMI is 33. DRE shows an indurated prostate with local extension consistent with T3 disease. Uh, Gland size is about 50 cc's. Uh, with a large median lobe. Trust biopsy shows eight of 12 positive cores, Gleason eight in two cores, greater than 14 millimeter tumor in multiple cores. Uh, this, is a, these are real, this is a real case. He had a bone scan, which showed increased activity of the right anterior third rib and L2 disease, uh, activity consistent with metastatic disease. His CT showed bilateral two-centimeter pelvic adenopathy, but no retroperitoneal or visceral metastatic disease. 
So some of the questions that we're, we're going to be pondering in this, in, uh, and Dr. Sweeney's going to go into more detail in this case, is for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, you know, is there any difference between starting in a, G, a GNRH antagonist versus an LHRH agonist? Should the patient receive immediate chemotherapy? Should the patient receive immediate oral androgen synthesis inhibitor? Should he receive both chemotherapy and oral androgen synthesis inhibitor? And should he receive prophylactic bone health agents? So, so if we were seeing this guy in our practice, these would be all the key questions that we would want to know about a patient coming in in 2018. And uh, I'm going to turn the podium now over to Dr. Chris Sweeney. Uh, Chris is professor of medicine um, at, uh, in, at the Dana-Farber in Boston, and uh, he's going to be um, talking about metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and addressing some of the questions on that particular case. Thank you. Thanks very much, Judd. So the conversation I want to have is how can we possibly individualize, perfect, um, how we think about and treat patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, recognizing it's a very dynamic field. And what I've learned as I've given lectures around the world is actually it's very much dependent on what you can access. So predominantly this is a room of urologists who can write for abiraterone and they cannot give chemotherapy. So the, when all things are equal, you'd probably give abiraterone in this setting rather than refer them to a medical oncologist. And so um, what I'd like to do is just think through the data sets between docetaxel, abiraterone, and what we know, and actually what we don't know, recognizing that, as Judd described in the cases, prostate cancer is an extremely variable disease. Some patients have a slow, progressive disease. Other people have a rapidly progressive disease and die quickly. So how can we individualize care based on the clinical parameters when we don't have good biomarkers? So I'm an equal opportunist, and these are the companies that I've uh, consulted with and given lectures for, um, and a, uh, running around the world. So here is the spectrum of prostate cancer. And in the purple box, I just want to just share the notion that systemic therapy for prostate cancer actually spans the spectrum from patients with organ-confined high risk of metastases, so a Gleason 9 patient who has um, a truss biopsy showing Gleason 9, otherwise no evidence of metastatic disease on conventional imaging, and we give hormones and radiation as one therapy versus surgery, and what the question is, what the best therapy is, is to be determined. And then all the way to the end where we have castration-resistant prostate cancer, where we're thinking of palliative intent and trying to just have the patients live longer with a better quality of life. So, but systemic therapy has a major role in the management of prostate cancer, and this is why we have, let's call it 60 people rolling up at 7.30 in the morning on a Sunday to think about systemic therapy for prostate cancer. So let's actually take a step back and just take a, ask the question, who actually dies of prostate cancer in the United States? Let's just recognize that about 5% of patients present with de novo metastatic disease despite heavy PSA screening. This is about one-third of the deaths of prostate cancer in the United States. So it's a significant problem when we think about it in that context. So the, and most of these patients present with high-volume de novo metastatic disease because they present with symptoms and they're found to have a 
extensive disease on imaging. The remaining two-thirds are those who relapse after localised therapy. There are those who have rapid progression after a prostatectomy or radiation, and they become metastatic hormone-sensitive in CRPC and then unfortunately die. And then there's the other patient that Judd described with the slowly indolent biochemical relapse, and they could have a disease that goes on for 25 years. And as urologists, you have all seen these patients over time. So this is a very interesting but a very um, informative data set. So for the patient who has a rising PSA after a prostatectomy, and they were operated on by a famed surgeon called... Um, from Johns Hopkins, who everyone knows, Pat Walsh, and their micrometastatic disease to conventional imaging, and they possibly do have disease that could be seen on a PSMA PET or whole body MRI. And in this setting, they've watched until they develop metastases after their prostatectomy, but have a rising PSA. And what one can see is that the median time to seeing something on a scan is about three years, and the median time for metastasis when they're placed on hormonal therapy to death is about 82 months. So these patients live for a long time. And what I just want to point out, although we may say something on a PSMA PET, they have an indolent biology, by and large. So the Canadians did the study of intermittent versus continuous hormonal therapy. And what one can see is that the blue and the red merge, so it's a purple curve, and we really can't see a difference. But what I would think is one of the most informative items is that try and get the point to that, is that 37%, almost 40% of the people who actually died on the study died of prostate cancer. So we're talking about a patient population that lives for a long time and at significant risk of dying of something else. So they do have an indolent biology, but we need to think about their general health issues as much as we do think about treating their rising PSA. So the question comes to the, whether we should be being aggressive in these patients and giving homo, uh, chemotherapy. So in this study, patients were treated with a rising PSA with either hormones alone for, for 18 months with or without docetaxel. This is a study that has not been published, and we know that positive studies, studies get published sooner than negative studies. And so this study hasn't been published because it's negative. So there's no clear benefit to adding docetaxel to a patient with a rising PSA in terms of delaying the time to PSA progression. So let's look at this again in terms of what about the delaying the times to radiographic progression. So this is a French study of hormones plus or minus docetaxel and they're observing patients until they have evidence of something that's seen on a scan. And here again, we see absolutely no hint of benefit of delaying the time to radiographic progression or delaying the time to death. So now let's just look at, the, at a high level, the data sets of what we know about metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Testosterone suppression is the backbone of therapy. No changes, that's been ongoing for many, many years. And volume of metastatic disease is prognostic. The more cancer you have, the shorter time to dying the disease. No, no surprise. So docetaxel added to hormonal therapy prolongs overall survival. We've got two positive studies, charted and stampede with docetaxel arm. And these are studies of hormones with or without docetaxel. 
And then there's one supposed negative study, GTUG15, but let's talk through that. That was conducted in an era where there was less access to life-prolonging CRPC therapy, and then Stampede Docetaxel did not break out patients by low volume and high volume. So what I want to do when we go to talking about docetaxel is think about the disease setting in terms of high volume and low volume and what we know and what we don't know. Abiraterone, as we know, has recently been studied in two studies, Latitude and Stampede. But let's actually go through and talk about what we actually do know about and who those patients were accrued to the study because most of those patients were very similar to the high volume charted patient population. So does the data set actually apply to patients with low volume disease? It's a question, and we'll actually go into thinking through that. So does volume matter for upfront chemotherapy for castration-naive metastatic prostate cancer? The answer is yes, if you consider prostate cancer as a disease that is biologically heterogeneous, is clinically heterogeneous, and requires individual treatment plans. So what I would just like to do is just go through a very simple uh, prognostic classification system that hasn't been matriculated into standard thinking, but I just want to share some data sets that actually can help us in front of us have a very simple way of thinking about the patients. So on hormonal therapy, we know that patients who have a high burden of disease, a couple of different definitions of what that means, have a poorer outcome, four or more bony metastases, for example, visceral metastases. Let's call that one risk factor. And what about the patient who presents with de novo metastatic disease? We do know they do poorer than patients who relapse after they've had a rising PSA for, uh, for localized therapy. So what if you have either high volume and de novo metastatic disease versus one of them versus neither of them? How do patients do? So we've actually put some data sets together and we've published this recently in the European Urology. If you have both, if you have neither risk factor, prior local therapy and low volume disease in the charted study, the GTUG15 study, and in the Dana-Farber hospital cohort study that we put together, one can see that the median survival is about eight years. This is from the time of starting hormonal therapy for metastatic disease. So clearly they have an indolent disease that goes on forever. Not forever, but we hopefully forever, but have a much more benign indolent outcome. If you have one of the risk factors, either prior local therapy, sorry, either high volume disease or de novo metastatic disease, your median survival is about 4.5 years. But if you have both, de novo, high volume, de novo disease and high volume disease, your median survival is three years. So a patient presenting in front of you, you can just use this as a very simple prognostic calculator to actually share with the patient this is what I expect your outcome would be based on what I know. Not perfect, but it is good. So I see that we've got the Chileans, we've got the um, Australians and the Germans in front of us here who have PSA made pet. And the question they say to me is, Dr. Sweeney, Chris, whatever you want to call me, mate, the, how do I interpret a PSA made pet in terms of volume of disease? I've got a patient who has one bony metastasis but on PSMA PET, they light up like a Christmas tree. And I actually have to admit, I do not know what the biological significance of that, and no one knows. It hasn't been sorted out yet. But conventional CAT scan and bone scan is boring. It's old school. 
but it is the gold standard. It's like a gold nugget that you pull out of a stream, but it has mud on it. If, it was as if we had a biomarker that was as prognostic as this, it would be a New England Journal paper, it would be a Nature paper, there would be press re releases around the world, but because it is not new and novel and interesting, it basically goes by the wayside. But can anyone tell me the prognostic significance, the clinical significance of a patient who does have two bony metastases and who is PSMA PET positive? I don't know the answer, but we actually have to get a hold of this data set and think through it because sooner or later between, in the United States we have Axiomen PET, fluky clothing, Axiomen, but PSMA PET was probably hot on its heels, but we already have it's cheaper to get a PSMA PET in India than it is to get a technician and bone scan and a PET scan and a um, CAT scan. It's like $200 and it's much less resources. So if it's happening in India, it's going to happen in Terre Haute, Indiana pretty soon, I'm pretty sure, everywhere in the, in the country. This is the future, but we have to get a hold of it. Where I do think it may have a role is if you actually do consider doing um, metastatic directed therapy with radiation to an isolated bony metastasis, you wouldn't do it in a patient who has disseminated disease, I think, in on a bone scan, sorry, on a PET scan, but isolated disease on a bone scan. You may want to just radiate that if they, the only area of uh, uptake is a patient who has disease that's relapsed after their prostatectomy, their PSA is 4, they've got an isolated area in their L5, and nothing else on a PSMA PET. But we have a lot of work to do, but be careful. It's coming, and we can actually ask the Germans and the Chileans and the uh, Australians what they think about PSMA PET. The, the pictures are very pretty, but how does it inform us and how do we treat these patients? So what I would like to do is go through the data set that actually um, <coughs> makes us think through the evidence that docetaxel should only be restricted to patients, in my opinion, with a higher burden of disease. As urologist here, chemotherapy is a four-letter word, so I'm actually playing to the audience of thinking who we should actually refer to a medical oncologist for giving that nasty thing called chemotherapy. It's not that nasty, but I know that's what urologists think. <laughs> Been around a while. So what we are learning from long-term follow-up of the charted study. This is the overall population. On the left, it was with the median follow-up of 29 months, and on the right, it was a median follow-up of 53.7 months, which we recently published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. The median survival went from 13 months with the first follow-up to 10 months, and the hazard ratio just decreasing the risk of death from 0.6 to 0.7. So why would longer-term follow-up actually have less impressive outcome than early follow-up? Well, here's the answer. The high-volume patients presented in, at, uh, in the first follow-up with almost 30 months of follow-up, 17 months with a hazard ratio of 0.6. Follow that up with a median follow-up of 53.7 months, identical. Median survival improvement of 15, 17 months and a hazard ratio of 0.6. It did not change. But with longer follow-up, we see that what may have been a suggestion that some patients with low volume disease may benefit from getting chemotherapy early. The left side has a ratio of 0.6, but it was non-significant because not enough events had happened. But with longer follow-up on the right, we see that the medium, with a median follow-up of 53.7 months, the hazard ratio was 1.0 with no improvement in median survival. 
So no evidence of benefit in this subgroup, but it was a prospectively defined subgroup that was planned to be analysed, but was not powered to be analysed as a standalone group. So when you have an analysis like this, you do something called the test for heterogeneity, where the size of the subgroup is analysed and compared with the um, outcome between the two different groups, high volume versus low volume, and what one can see is that the test for heterogeneity showed that the treatment effect differed between the low volume and the high volume. So although it was a subgroup, there was actually evidence of a differential treatment effect. So let's actually think through this a little bit. On the left-hand side, we actually see in the high volume type patients that the time to CRPC had a hazard ratio of 0.58, but actually the time to clinical progression, so radiographic progression on scans after their rising PSA or clinical deterioration, the hazard ratio was actually more impressive at 0.53. So it makes me ask the question, does early dose of Taxil actually make the second line therapy more effective so they have their PSA rise and it gives the abiraterone? Do they have a better effect than patients who have ADT and put on abiraterone or dose of Taxil at progression? Because maybe, possibly, the docetaxel debulked the androgen-independent disease to make the abiraterone more effective. I don't know, but it's an interesting observation. Here we see that the time to progression in terms of PSA was actually had a hazard ratio of 0.7, which was significant, but it was not clinically backed up by delaying the time to clinical progression or improving overall survival. So there's no evidence of benefit of docetaxel in this setting. That was one study. So whether the study was conducted with an Australian accent as the principal investigator in America, or whether the study was conducted in France with French accents with a, a delightful lady called Gwenelle Gravis, GTUG15, one can see at the bottom here in red is that the treatment effect was limited to high volume patients only. So two studies, one in France, one in the United States, the treatment effect was limited to high volume patients. The UK study has not, but they are planning to look at it, go back and retrospectively look at low volume and high volume patients. What we also know is that although the study in GTUG 15 was a negative study in terms of overall survival, there are a number of reasons why that was the case, but what we can see here is that they actually performed the same in terms of when it's looked at in the test of heterogeneity. And we'll actually look at some of the data sets in a second. So although the French study was a negative study, classically speaking, at a statistical significance level, it actually did behave similar to the charted study in terms of the high volume and the low volume. The benefit was only in the high volume in both studies, so the studies were actually homogeneous. So chemotherapy, yes, it is a four-letter word, but there is, a, there is actually a return on investment for the high volume. On the left, we see there's a decline in quality of life in the low volume patients, but at 12 months, at, at the three-month mark, but at 12 months, no evidence of improvement. Whereas in the high volume patients, yes, there was a, a dip in quality of life from baseline, but it didn't really differ in terms compared with hormonal therapy, but the quality of life was better at the 12-month mark. So getting the disease under control actually had a long-term downstream ramifications with minimal impact in quality of life in high volume patients. 
So let's turn to the simple hormonal therapy called abiraterone. I say that because that's how it's marketed. So poor risk, de novo metastatic disease with more than two, three or more bony metastases, gleasinate and visceral metastases. What I'd like to first point out is that the hormonal therapy alone arm had a median survival of almost three years, which is identical to the median survival of patients with metastatic de novo disease in the charter study. Metastatic de novo high volume disease, three years. It's amazing how consistent that is. Adding abiraterone also decreased the rate of, had a hazard ratio from improving outcomes of 0.6, identical to the impact of docetaxel in high volume de novo metastatic disease. And of course, that tracked with an improvement in radiographic progression-free survival. So here's the quality of life data. By delaying the time to progression with a hormonal therapy, it also delayed the time to quality of life deterioration compared with hormonal therapy alone, ADT alone, so comparing the red curve with the blue curve. It's great that the Stampede study has also been studied, but let, we can look at this and actually learn a little bit of some nuanced data. Here, the median survival is actually on the hormonal therapy alone arm, is, has not been reached, although the follow-up is longer than three years, because they have both low volume and high volume patients. But with the early readout with a three-year overall survival, there was a hazard ratio of 0.6. So to me, this suggests that they are impacting the outcome of patients who have poor risk disease, who have events early. So we do not have any information between the abiraterone studies, be it stampede or latitude, that we're improving the outcomes of patients who have the more indolent low volume disease. So let's look at the side effect profile. On the left is the side effect profile of docetaxel where we have what we are very familiar with, some patients having significant fatigue, 4%, neutropenic fever, which we worry about the most, and a very low rate of neuropathy. And on the right, we have the more indolent and insidious side effect profile. Although it's easy to write for abiraterone, once you've gone through the prior approval, you've found out what the copay is and the patients mortgage their house because they don't have the um, right amount of co uh, funding to pay out of their monthly salaries for the copay, you do have the risk of hypertension and um, blood sugar elevations and liver dysfunction and electrolyte disturbance. So I'm just gonna say, so we have a bunch of urologists in the room and they're prescribing abiraterone, who actually has a system for monitoring their, their electrolytes, their sugar and their blood pressure or, you had, or have you had to change your practice? As urologists, have you actually had to change your practice where you actually are doing some more medical management than you would have otherwise done? So yes, you've had to change your practice or you've always been managing um, electrolytes and blood sugars and uh, blood pressures. Or have you, who's actually developed better relationships with their primary care providers and their referring base? <laughs> Judd, how do, how do you work it? So, um, I work, you know, in an academic environment, I, I, I do prescribe abiraterone, enzalutamide, apalutamide. I will say this, if it's a straightforward patient who I've been managing myself, and I will manage him. If it's someone who I have, don't have a good, you know, a long-term relationship with, or that patient 
may have significant comorbidities, I usually will then partner with my medical oncology team because they actually have a little more time to manage some of those things than I do as a busy surgeon. Yeah, and we actually, as medical oncologists, we actually have a coffee with our patients and we have a chat. We go out and <laughs> <laughs> but, it's much more so leisurely, nice. yeah. And, Check in with the patient. How, how's the family? Oh, so, um, but, no, we're not busy at all. Um, but no, there is actually, so um, I, know, I can see a Australian neurologist in the room, but uh, without naming names, but it's not the neurologist in the room. He actually told me the story. Yeah, I wrote my first prescription of apparatus, and there I was cutting away, taking the prostate out, having a time of life, and I get a page. And the nurse calls me. Doctor, 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 doctor. We'll give this doctor, doctor. Um, yeah, just want to let you know that this patient has elevated liver function. Just, he said, oh, that's interesting. Oh, jeez, that's me. I wrote for the apparatus. <laughs> what do I do now? He called the medical oncologist. So my point is, it's not a set and forget. Most patients do fine, but you actually have to watch them because some of these side effects do appear, and you actually have to have a significant amount of medical um, input. It's not the set and forget. I've had patients roll in with significant con and unexplained urgent congestive heart failure, and it turns out to be the aberrator and fluid retention. So it's not a set and forget. That's the message I want to have. So, Chris, Chris let me just yeah. say one thing. Oh, my gosh, in, this is on. In yeah. our uh, practice, uh, we run uh, an advanced therapeutics clinic, and uh, the urologists take care of these patients unless they need chemotherapy. But we have a multidisciplinary approach. We have an, a, a monthly tumor board with our uh, radiation oncologist, urologist, uh, and we have a medical oncologist. We do treat this, and we treat uh, with abiraterone just that specifically uh, on label so that these patients are going to get monitored every two weeks with LFTs, uh, potassium, uh, glucose, uh, for the first three months and then every month thereafter. If we run into trouble where we have trouble managing hypertension or their diabetes, then we reach out to the uh, primary care docs or their endocrinologist or um, uh, whoever takes care of their hypertension. So, can just just to follow up on that, and and obviously, um, the on, you know on label is every two weeks for the first three months. It, I actually Chris, don't do even do, do that. No, do you no, actually do, do that, that. No, once a month? Once a month. But if if they're coming in. Well, it takes about a month to actually get the prescription. It takes two weeks. You set the appointment for a month later. It takes about two months to actually get the prescription in their hand. So you end up seeing them two weeks after they've actually started it anyway when you bring them back. So I see them monthly. I'm giving, um, and then I just taper off over time. If they're doing great, you can actually see them every six weeks, and every, then um, you see them uh, twice, and they're giving the Lupron with the second injection, or the uh, Gazerolin, whatever it is. But my message is, and what's great to hear is actually rather to say, actually, we've had to think through this. We've actually had to, it's not a set and forget. Um, enzalutamide is another proposition. There's a study that we've completed accrual, um, run out of Australia called Enzamet, where enzalutamide has been studied in the setting a little bit um, less monitoring intensive, but that's a work in progress. But we don't have the data set yet. But it's great to actually, the main message and why we're harping on this for the last five minutes is we need to actually watch these patients when we put them on abiraterone. So let's look at the data set. So side by side, the French study had a hazard ratio of 0.88, but the benefit was really driven by patients in the high volume. And similarly, in the chartered study, again, the overall survival benefit was only in the high volume patients. 
And in the latitude study, we have a hazard ratio of 0.6, but these were only patients with poor risk disease. The latitude stampede abiraterone, again, hazard ratio of 0.6, but it, we don't know the low volume and the high volume, and the median follow-up was actually slower, uh, less and shorter. So we basically do not have long-term readout. We do not know the impact on the low volume patients with abiraterone. And this is a drug that actually has cumulative side effects from the prednisone dosing, the hypertension, and it's not a set and forget. So let's just think through the interesting observations of the hormones plus docetaxel and what we've learned about the biology. GTUG15, the French study, was conducted in an era when less access to life-prolonging CRPC therapies than charted and stampede docetaxel, but had a similar impact on time to progression. The overall survival benefit was only in the high-volume patients. And what this tells me is that charted was conducted in an era where patients get, that could get docetaxel followed by abiraterone, and the like. So was stampede, whereas GTOG15 completed accrual and patients progressed before availability of this second-line therapies. So what this tells me, it's a game plan that needs to be de developed if you're going to give docetaxel, and the benefit is from giving both, not just one. And we've talked about the test for heterogeneity. So the patients on the control arms of hormone ADT alone had events quickly like charted on the high volume with a hazard ratio of 0.6, and I'm harping on because we're probably impacting the poor prognostic group. We do not have a data set to comment on whether the combination of upfront hormones plus chemotherapy abiraterone is better than sequential ADT followed by abiraterone in low volume slash oligometastatic patients. So in a patient with low volume disease, we know docetaxel is not beneficial, but what about abiraterone? Should we be giving it in patients in a sequential approach versus giving a blast of hormonal therapy, ADT, plus abiraterone, get them into a deep remission and pause for a while, especially if they're going to be living for 5, 10, 15 years, sometimes, you never know, and avoiding the long-term side effects, or add their abiraterone if the ADT is not working. I don't know the answers, but these are possible scenarios that we could actually deploy to minimize the metabolic long-term complications of being on abiraterone and prednisone for many years. Stampede is this study where there's a, a many patients being controlled to the hormonal therapy for many, many months, many, many years since the study's been ongoing. And at the one point in time, patients were randomized to hormonal therapy alone, docetaxel, or abiraterone. So there were 566 patients who were accrued to abiraterone or the docetaxel arm at the same time. And what one can see, when you target the androgen receptor with abiraterone, you delay the time to PSA rise, no surprise. There was a delay in the time to progression-free survival, but no term improvement in skeletal radiated events, core-specific or oral survival by giving abiraterone. So this is the most direct evidence we have that the bigger outcomes, the bigger, um, most important outcomes, are not impacted whether you give abiraterone or docetaxel, they are the same. And a number of people may have read the network meta-analysis that suggests that abiraterone is actually better. But these are indirect comparisons, and I just want to caution people when you read the literature, these are driven by the results in hand, 
So docetaxel is handicapped because patients were accrued earlier, they accrued and have longer follow-up, so the indolent patients dilute the survival curves. One of the studies was conducted in an era where they didn't have access to life-belonging therapies for CRPC. So this, the abiraterone is inherently biased to be better because of this shorter follow-up and being conducted in a more modern era. So my proposition is it takes two to tangle. It, a patient needs docetaxel and abiraterone to get the treatment benefits. GTUG15 suggests that if you don't get docetaxel and life-prolonging CRPC therapies, there's no clear over-survival benefit. Stampede suggests abrator and docetaxel are as good as each other, and these studies were conducted in countries where there was access to CRPC therapies with abrator and the like, United Kingdom, Switzerland, and Ireland. The docetaxel treatment effect, as we talked about, delayed the time to PSA rise more significantly, and then more significant improvement in time to clinical progression for patients with high volume disease, but we didn't see that in the low volume disease patients. Despite giving docetaxel and abiraterone, either of the drugs, there's still 20% of patients who die within 24 months. The charted high volume, the latitude, and the stampede abiraterone, we need to do better. And the question that Judd asked was do patients getting triplet therapies do better? And we don't know the answer. Hi the hypothesis is that with docetaxel, you're attacking the androgen-independent cells, but still testosterone-independent. With abiraterone, you're ta targeting the androgen-dependent but testosterone-independent cells, so they are different clones. And the, we do have studies out there of ADT plus docetaxel versus ADT plus docetaxel plus ENZA or abiraterone of sorts. So the ENZA-MED study and the PEACE-1 study that we'll hopefully read out in 2019, did stratify by docetaxel, and as you can see, about 1,000 patients hopefully uh, will have data set that can provide information to whether the triplet is better for, than the doublet, but we don't know yet. And as I can estimate, about 800 of the 1,000 patients actually were high-volume disease who pr presumably would be the patients who would benefit the most. So in 2018, we do not have data saying the triplet is better than the doublet. This will probably be the data set that we, we will have. And there are other studies that are happening of doublet versus triplet, VDT, dosi plus or minus darolutamide, for example. But this is the data set we'll have soon to say whether we should have be prescribing the triplet rather than the doublet, but we don't know in 2018. So. Imagine you have the budget. So I had to give it the debate actually in this town at GUASCO about whether to be the docetaxel advocate. And actually, I got more convinced that I would be the docetaxel prescriber after speaking to patients. But when you go through this enough times and you talk about co-pays in the United States. So if you think about it, if you had to treat docetaxel for six cycles, about $10,000. Whereas, and then you give abiraterone for the 18 months for the median time to progression for rising PSA. It's about $15 million to treat 100 patients. Whereas if you gave abiraterone with the median time to progression for hormone-sensitive disease, it's about 36 months, so it's about $30 million to treat. So if you had to think about the cost of giving docetaxel followed by abiraterone versus abiraterone followed by docetaxel, it's actually a little bit cheaper to give the docetaxel followed by abiraterone. So whether, whether cost is a consideration, 
What the patient feels is their copay. And when I've sat down with patients and I've gone through the side effect profile, the six months, the 18 weeks of the chemotherapy, many of them actually said, let's just get the chemotherapy out of the way. But it is unfashionable to propose the toxic therapy up front. Um, but docetaxel has short-term adverse events, but you've got to be chemofit and high-volume disease to be, have the benefit. And the other thing is, patients get more frail with hormonal therapy with time, and you actually may miss an opportunity to give the chemotherapy, and the bad joke that I gave this time at, at GeoASCO was M&M. You've got one shot, one opportunity, and so sometimes it's best to give the docetaxel, put them on a treatment break, and then add the abradorin, because sometimes you may give the, miss the opportunity. That's all very nice, but what about the future? Triplets versus doublets. We may learn from biomarker work which patients benefit from docetaxel versus abradorin versus both, but that's future. We don't know yet. And what I would say is the easy way may not always be the right way. So as urologists, think about referring the patients to getting the chemotherapy out of the way sooner rather than later. Here's an example of the ENZIMET study that I think we'll read out hopefully in the next 12 months. What we can see, 1,125 patients, and we added docetaxel as stratification into the study. What we can see, even before we had the data, most physicians were not prescribing docetaxel for low volume, but most patients were chemofit and got docetaxel for high volume disease, but not all high volume patients are chemofit. Here's a slew of studies of different versions of more potent AR inhibition. The uh, Enzimet and Archer study, the um, P study being run by the French, we'll read out with abiraterone, and um, the Titan study, sorry, the darolutamide study, our sense of ADT docetaxel plus or minus darolutamide has completed accrual. And uh, Judd pointed out the study, the Horrid study, which is read out for the first time in heart patients with high volume disease who got ADT plus radiation versus ADT alone in high volume disease. But got, these studies actually ask the question with more modern systemic therapy in high volume disease and include patients with oligometastatic disease. So there's a lot of water to go under the bridge to work out whether to add radiation. But at this stage in 2018, we do not have any data to support it. We actually have data to not support giving it to patients with high volume disease, but maybe low volume. And with that, I thank everyone for their attention. Very nice. Uh, thank you so much. And we'll have, uh, we are going to have a question and answer uh, after Dr. Karsh's talk. But for those who came into the room, um, and I apologize for the people who've been here, we're going to need you to have your app, the AUA app, up and running near the end because there's some more audience response questions. So I would encourage anyone who was not here at the beginning where we did the polling, we are going to do some further polling at the end. So we will need people to have their um, AUA app uh, available in about a, a half an hour after Dr. Karsh's talk. Um, gives me great pleasure to introduce a good friend and colleague, Larry Karsh, uh, who's a director of research um, at uh, Urologic Center of Colorado. And his task today is to talk about uh, castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer. Larry? Thank you, Jod, and uh, thanks uh, for the opportunity of being on stage with uh, you and Chris Sweeney. And 
thanks to the uh, AUA. Uh, y uh, buenos días a los ustedes que hablan español. I know this is being translated. Uh, so my task is to talk about castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, these are my disclosures. And I think we're going to start off by defining castration-resistant prostate cancer. So that um, uh, patients who have non-metastatic or M0 prostate cancer uh, have a castrate level of uh, testosterone and PSA-only progression. M1 metastatic uh, CRPC is uh, radiographic progression in the castrate setting. So these are the six new agents that have been approved uh, on uh, overall survival. Uh, actually, some of them are older. Docetaxel was actually approved in tw uh, 2004. Uh, but I'm going to uh, talk about the uh, hormone agents, the uh, radiopharmaceutical, alpha-emitting radiopharmaceutical, as well as immunotherapy. So this is the treatment landscape for uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, we've had uh, immunotherapy, uh, or, uh, radiopharmaceutical, or hormone therapies. Uh, and we also have, uh, and these were all approved on overall survival, but we also have denosumab and zoledronic acid that are, uh, have been approved to treat uh, skeletal-related events. And that's all been in the metastatic CRPC uh, setting. We now have, for the first time, a new uh, drug added to our armamentarium uh, in the M0 space, or the non-metastatic CRPC, and it's apalutamide. Uh, which was recently approved. So AR signaling pathway is a key driver of prostate cancer growth and proliferation. Androgen binds to the receptor. Uh, it translocates into the nucleus where you get uh, increased uh, DNA binding and transcription, resulting in tumor growth and proliferation. And uh, disease progression despite medical or surgical castration signals the emergence of a prostate cancer phenotype that can uh, proliferate and survive in a low androgen environment. And many, uh, there are many uh, mechanisms or, uh, that have been uh, identified to account for the ability of these tumors to progress despite castration. And they are adrenal and intertumoral androgen biosynthesis, AR gene amplification and overexpression, uh, AR mutations, AR splice variants. Uh, and just one word about the splice variants, uh, there is a uh, uh, a new test that became commercially available early this year uh, called ARV7, uh, although there are a number of different resistance mechanisms and uh, variants, uh, that is the most abundant. Uh, it was described um, uh, by Anton Arrakis and their team from Hopkins in a New England Journal paper in 2014. And what they found was that patients that had the ARV7 uh, splice variant uh, not only did they not respond to these second next generation uh, hormonal therapies like uh, enzalutamide or abiraterone, but they progressed much more rapidly and they died more rapidly. So uh, I'm going to start with abiraterone. It's marketed as Zytiga. It's an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor and it inhibits uh, uh, androgen production from the testes, the adrenal gland, as well as the tumor itself. 
Uh, now, this is not meant to be a monotherapy. All of these therapies that we're going to talk about are actually given in addition to ADT, whether it's medical or surgical uh, castration. And it is given as uh, four 250 milligram tablets on an empty stomach, uh, and prednisone is administered. Uh, and the reason that prednisone is administered is because as a 17-lyase inhibitor, uh, you have uh, decreased production of cortisol, which uh, in turn increases ACTH from the pituitary and upregulates mineralocorticoid or aldosterone. So the prednisone is given just to make up for what is lost in the cortisol pathway and to prevent uh, the mineral or corticoid effect of hypertension, uh, hypokalemia, and, and uh, uh, fluid retention. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But this was the trial, the uh, Cougar 301, that got the first approval for abiraterone back in uh, uh, April of 2011, and it was in the post-docetaxel setting. Uh, what we found was that the uh, overall survival uh, was improved by 4.6 months uh, on patients who had abiraterone uh, versus the placebo. Now, this is probably where we use it more commonly in the pre-chemo space, but this was the Cougar 302 trial, uh, which randomized patients with uh, metastatic CRPC and a good performance status between uh, one-to-one ABI and prednisone versus placebo and prednisone. Uh, and patients with visceral METs were excluded from this trial. But this was the first trial to show, uh, to use a co-primary endpoint of radiographic uh, progression-free survival. And it was the first time that allowed us to uh, see that uh, RPFS was a meaningful and later validated endpoint. So we used it in conjunction with overall survival. Secondary endpoints were time to opiate use, chemotherapy, uh, PSA deterioration, and it hit those endpoints. But for the, the uh, overall survival, uh, in the final analysis, it was found to have a 4.4-month uh, month overall survival advantage. The hazard ratio was 0.81 for a 19% uh, reduction. And for the radiographic progression-free survival, this was pretty significant with a statistically significant hazard ratio, 0.42. Uh, uh, and what it, we had was an eight-month advantage in the, in the delay to progression, a radiographic progression. Uh, so we actually had a 57% reduction in the risk of having uh, radiographic progression from that trial. So these are some of the adverse uh, events of special interest, and we kind of touched on those, but they really have to do with uh, the mineral corticoid effect, fluid retention, hypokalemia, hypertension, uh, and transaminitis uh, that occurred more frequently in patients on Abbey versus uh, 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 placebo. Uh, and that's why on the labeling, it says that you need to get these, um, uh, excuse me, uh, that you need to, um, I need to re, can I go backwards on a couple slides, sorry? Uh, red. Red, no. okay. There we go. And that's why you need to uh, look at these uh, LFTs, potassium, and uh, uh, sugars, uh, glucose, every 
uh, two weeks for the first three months and then monthly thereafter. I know we stick to the label and uh, uh, probably uh, it may be a little too, uh, uh, too much testing, but we, uh, we've been doing this. Now, enzalutamide has a different mechanism of action. It's an androgen receptor inhibitor that works on multiple steps in the androgen signaling uh, pathway. It tightly binds uh, the androgen in the, uh, in the cytoplasm of the uh, tumor cell, and it inhibits translocation into the nucleus uh, and uh, inhibits DNA binding and uh, downstream transcription, and ultimately results in uh, tumor death and lower tumor volume. Uh, this is uh, marketed as, keep hitting that, gotta go back one. It's marketed as Extandy, and it's given as four, can we go back? It's marketed as Extandy, given as 440 milligram uh, tabs daily, with or without food. Uh, and uh, this mechanism of action is really similar to apalutamide, which I'm going to show you later. But the uh, uh, AFFIRM trial uh, was the first trial to get the approval for... Uh, for enzalutamide. Boy, I'm, it just keeps going here, sorry. Uh, for enzalutamide, uh, and it was uh, first approved in August of 2012. Uh, it was approved on overall survival in the post-docetaxel setting, uh, and it had a 4.8-month survival advantage. Uh, this was the uh, trial in the pre-chemo uh, space, and this is probably where you're going to use this more commonly. Uh, patients were randomized uh, to enzalutamide or placebo. Visceral metastases were allowed in this trial. It also had a co-primary endpoint, and you can see some of the secondary uh, endpoints, which it did meet. Uh, in the uh, PREVAIL trial, uh, the uh, overall survival uh, was, uh, had a hazard ratio of 0.77 uh, and a 2.2-month difference in, uh, in survival. Uh, the, primary, the radiographic progression-free survival had a significant uh, delay in the time uh, by 83% reduction in, in the time to progression. Uh, the hazard ratio was uh, highly significant uh, at 0.17. So some of the adverse events of uh, interest are seizure in, uh, with the enzalutamide in the AFFIRM trial. Uh, seven patients uh, experienced a seizure versus none in the placebo arm. Uh, and in the PREVAIL trial, there were seizures in one uh, patient in each group. And some of the other adverse events of interest are fatigue, hypertension, and falls, which occurred more commonly in patients on enzalutamide than uh, the uh, uh, placebo. So now we have a uh, radiopharmaceutical, uh, the first one that's approved on overall survival. It's uh, radium-223 marketed as uh, Zofigo. Uh, it is an alpha emitter. Uh, it is uh, calcium-emetic, and uh, being an alpha emitter, it has a very short range of uh, penetration, uh, really 100 micro micrometers, which is about the uh, depth of a, a sheet, of page, uh, sheet of paper. Uh, but it has high energy uh, radiation and uh, it creates lethal double-stranded DNA breaks. 
uh, resulting in uh, cytotoxicity. And because it doesn't, uh, it's a large molecule and it doesn't penetrate as deeply, you don't get as much marrow uh, toxicity as you do with a beta uh, pharmaceuticals, radiopharmaceuticals. And this was the Alsimca trial, 921 patients were uh, randomized two to one to get radium versus uh, placebo, plus the best standard of care. The best standard of care at the time uh, were first-generation antiandrogens, uh, uh, androgen biosynthesis inhibitor like ketoconazole, uh, or even uh, uh, prednisone. Uh, and the endpoint was overall survival. Uh, and this was for in patients who had greater than two bone mets, no visceral mets. They could have received docetaxel before, and about half of these patients did get docetaxel before they went on radium, uh, and they had to have a good performance status. Uh, it did not have an impact on uh, PSA. Uh, and this is the primary endpoint. Uh, it was statistically significant at 0.7 with a 30% reduction in the risk of death, and that equated to 3.6 months, and it was approved based on this trial. Uh, CYP-T, the first immunotherapy uh, to be approved in an adult solid tumor, was uh, CYP-T, uh, and it is an autologous immunotherapy against uh, prostate uh, uh, acid phosphatase, uh, and it is indicated for asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients with non-visceral uh, metastases and who chemotherapy has not yet uh, been indicated. So what it is, uh, what, uh, this is uh, done by getting three uh, uh, procedures uh, of infusions where uh, we take immature uh, uh, androgen-presenting cells from the patient through a leukophoresis, and uh, this is done uh, usually every two weeks for three treatments. Uh, but uh, what we do with those, uh, we send these uh, mononuclear white cells off to Dendrion, who uh, does a fusion protein, a culture with a fusion protein of prostatic acid phosphatase and an immune modulator, GMCSF. And this is done ex vivo. Uh, it's then sent back. We infuse it into the patient about three days later, and they have these fully loaded uh, antigen-presenting uh, cells, antigen-presenting cells, uh, that will activate the patient's own T cells to attack the prostate cancer. So it was approved based on the uh, IMPACT trial. Uh, CYP-T is otherwise known as uh, Probenge. Uh, and these were in asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic patients uh, with uh, no visceral metastases. And what we found was that the uh, overall survival was improved by 4.1 months. Now, what was interesting about this is a post hoc analysis, and this was by Paul Shellhammer, and what he uh, did was, uh, and, and his uh, associates, they, uh, it was post hoc and it was not pre-specified, but they looked at the, uh, the different quartiles of PSA. So patients that had a PSA of less than 22 had a uh, overall survival of 13 months versus patients all the way over a, a greater than 134 who had a 2.8 month survival advantage. And then you can see 22 to 50, you have 7.1 months and then 50 to 134, 5.4. So even though the PSA is higher, 
it doesn't mean that you don't get effect. The effect is, is less. And the median PSA in the trial, uh, in the uh, uh, impact trial, was uh, about 50. So how do we sequence? Uh, that's still a big question. We've never uh, really uh, studied these drugs head to head. Uh, so we really have to use our gestalts and, our, and uh, our clinical experience plus guidelines at this point. And you know, five years ago, uh, we uh, really, uh, all these drugs were just becoming approved and so we didn't have a big experience of using them all. And now that, uh, you know, uh, uh, in 2018, we do have an experience with using them, uh, but there's still the question on how to sequence. And this is a, a little formula that I use. I always, anybody who started on ADT gets treatment for bone health, a DEXA scan, uh, calcium, vitamin D. And if they develop osteoporosis, then we do uh, use an uh, antiresorptive like a bisphosphonate or denosumab. And then if patients have metastatic disease, castration resistant, uh, 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 prostate cancer, uh, then we use zoledronic acid uh, or high-dose denosumab each given monthly uh, for skeletal-related event prevention. So that's how we first start uh, in managing these patients. And then I would use the uh, immune therapy first. Uh, as I mentioned to you in that quartile data, the lower the PSA, the longer the uh, survival. So if we can uh, use it and the patients don't have uh, visceral mets, we will start uh, CYP-T and then go to the oral agents. So it can be abiraterone or enzalutamide in whatever sequence you want. I think that if you have men that have severe hypertension and diabetes, you might want to use enzalutamide. Uh, patients that have uh, seizure disorder, they're very frail, have lots of fatigue, I'd probably use abiraterone. And then we can sequence in uh, radium. Uh, and I do that, I use those together uh, with a uh, uh, oral agent. Uh, I may start the oral agent, then radium-223, providing these patients qualify for, for uh, the radium-223. Uh, now, there has been a study called the ERA study, uh, which just uh, reported out some safety and cautionary uh, issues in, in starting abiraterone and radium-223 simultaneously, because that's what the trial does. Uh, it's an ongoing trial. But what they found was a signal of increased deaths and fractures. So I would use caution in using Abby and radium together. Uh, I do use uh, uh, enzalutamide now with uh, patients who are going to get radium at the same time. And remember, when radium was uh, approved, it was approved uh, based on uh, radium or placebo plus the best standard of care at the time. And now we have these newer hormone agents that are the best standard of care uh, of the time, abiraterone and enzalutamide. And then you can move on to docetaxel after these patients progress. You can use radium after docetaxel uh, if it uh, calls for. Uh, remember that 50% of patients in the, uh, uh, the Alsimca trial uh, had been given docetaxel prior to radium. And then if they progress on uh, docetaxel, then cabazitaxel is a second-line therapy that's been approved. So now, what about M0 CRPC? We finally have an unmet need that's met. There was, uh, it has not been a, a therapy approved in the M0 space, but now with the data from Prosper uh, and Spartan, we're gonna look at enzalutamide uh, and apalutamide.
So the definition of non-metastatic CRPC is that you have to have a rising PSA in the castrate setting and no metastases on imaging. So it's non-metastatic M0 CRPC. So what might our goals be for treating uh, M0 disease? Well, we probably want to prevent metastases, preserve quality of life, and prolong life. So that's what I would look at in considering uh, treatment for these patients. So the PROSPER data was uh, presented uh, on uh, GUASCO on February 8th of this year. Uh, it was actually, they were presented back to back, PROSPER and the Spartan trials. Uh, PROSPER uh, it looks at using uh, enzalutamide in the non-metastatic uh, setting. So these patients at the time of uh, study entry had to have a CT and a bone scan that were negative for imaging. They had to be castrate and they had to have a doubling time uh, indicating that they have a significant progression of disease. So the doubling time was uh, less than or equal to 10 months. And they were randomized two to one to get enzalutamide versus placebo. The primary endpoint is metastasis-free survival, and it's defined as time from randomization to the time of first evidence of distant metastases or death. Uh, secondary endpoints were overall survival, uh, time to pain progression, opiate use, uh, chemotherapy, uh, PSA progression, and uh, quality of life uh, changes. And the baseline characteristics between the two groups were pretty similar. Uh, they were minimally symptomatic. PSA doubling time uh, was, in, uh, in, uh, was less than six months in 77% of the patients in each of these arms. Uh, and the median PSA was about 10 or 11. Uh, and uh, the other interesting finding was that 90% of these patients had not received bone targeting agents uh, uh, prior to the study. And this was the uh, primary endpoint, metastasis-free survival. And you can see a nice separation at about three months. Uh, the, uh, it was uh, statistically significant with a hazard ratio uh, of uh, 0.29 uh, and a 71% reduction in the risk for developing uh, metastasis. And uh, the side effects were similar to that seen in the other enzalutamide trials, uh, hypertension. Uh, I might mention that uh, the uh, seizure risk, uh, there were uh, three patients in the enzalutamide arm that uh, experienced a seizure versus, not, versus none in the placebo arm. And so that drug has not been uh, approved yet. It is in fast track. Uh, um, approval for, uh, by the FDA, and we may see it approved uh, uh, pretty soon here. Uh, but there, this is the other drug, apalutamide. It's an uh, a androgen uh, uh, receptor antagonist, which has a similar mechanism of action as enzalutamide. It inhibits the, uh, uh, the binding of androgen in the receptor and then translocation, inhibits the translocation into the nucleus so that you ultimately get low, uh, less tumor volume uh, and uh, proliferation. So this was the Spartan trial. It was presented uh, uh, at GUASCO, as I mentioned. They were uh, uh, presented uh, at the uh, uh, same time. Um, and uh, it was the same indications, non-metastatic CRPC. Patients had to have, they had CT scan and bone scan indicating that there were no mets. 
PSA doubling time was less than or equal to 10 months, and patients were stratified in PSA less than six, PSA doubling time of less than six months, uh, greater than six months, whether or not they were on bone-sparing agents. And this trial also allowed patients who had nodal mets in the pelvis below the bifurcation uh, to be uh, randomized into the trial. It was two-to-one randomization, uh, 1,200 patients, apalutamide plus ADT, uh, versus uh, ADT and uh, placebo. The primary endpoint, metastasis-free survival. Secondary endpoints were pretty similar to the PROSPER trial. Uh, they did have a time to uh, secondary uh, progression uh, uh, RPFS also as one of the endpoints. So the primary endpoint was uh, highly significant with a hazard ratio of 0.28 and a 72% reduction in the risk of uh, uh, developing metastases. So there was a two-year, 24-month uh, survival uh, advantage uh, uh, in, uh, in delaying the time to metastases. And here you see the baseline characteristics. They're pretty similar in each group. These are pretty small, but uh, basically the uh, uh, PSA, uh, median PSA was 7.8, uh, about uh, uh, 77 percent of the patients had a PSA doubling time of less than six months, and uh, there were about 11 percent of the patients, uh, or 17 percent of the patients who had N1 disease in that trial. Some of the adverse events of interest in this trial uh, that are different uh, are the patients experienced rash. Uh, and about 24% of the patients uh, in the apalutamide arm versus 5.5 in the placebo arm. When it came to grade three and four rash, it was 5.2% versus 0.3. Uh, most of these rashes were macular or macular papular, uh, and they were treated, uh, if they were grade three and four, uh, you could do a dose reduction of the apalutamide from uh, 240 milligrams to 180 milligrams, uh, and the, uh, about 4% of those patients required systemic corticosteroids, but usually these rashes resolved after uh, you either dose reduced or, limit or, or, or stopped the drug. Um, and uh, there were no Stephen Johns, Johnson types of uh, reactions. Hypothyroidism was another signal that they found, uh, and this was really more of a laboratory uh, uh, issue that they found an elevated TSH. Uh, if patients were found to have uh, to require um, uh, thyroid, then uh, in, in in your practice, then you can give those patients some thyroid. But generally, we don't have to monitor for that. There were no grade three and four reactions, and then uh, there were two. Uh, uh, seizures experienced on the apalutamide arm in this study. So this is uh, kind of comparing these uh, two studies. They're very similar. Uh, there were some different endpoints, uh, but uh, they were both approved on metastasis-free survival. And uh, the uh, apalutamide is, has been approved. Uh, it was first presented on February 8th at the ASCO, as I mentioned before. And within one week, it was approved uh, by the FDA for uh, the M0 non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patients. It's marketed as Erlita. 
Uh, I don't know, I haven't seen anything approved as quickly as this within one week of being presented. Uh, and then uh, in March, the NCCN adopted it as uh, category one treatment on their guidelines. Uh, we are still waiting to, to see, uh, and I think the AUA is going to be uh, giving it a category A recommendation at this meeting of the plenary session. So there's one more trial out there called Aramis that is uh, uh, looking at darolutamide, which is another antigen receptor inhibitor. It has a similar uh, design, and uh, the study closed to uh, enrollment about six months ago, and they're going to get their first, uh, 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 they've, they've done a data lock, so we may get uh, a reading on it at some point here soon. Uh, but it uh, is another drug that's uh, be being looked at in M0 CRPC. So in summary, uh, we want to, the goals are for three Ps, prevent metastases, prolong survival, and preserve quality of life. And who should we treat for M0 C uh, CRPC? Non-metastatic patients. Uh, we're using CT and bone scan as the standard imaging. PSA doubling time of less than or equal to 10 months and good performance statuses. Now, the question is, will next generation imaging shrink this M0 space? I don't know. I mean, the gold standard is still to use CT scan and bone scans. I think uh, time will tell whether or not uh, we're going to be using these uh, uh, flucyclovine or axiomin scans and PSMA scans uh, to start staging these patients and following them. Uh, so uh, time will tell if that's uh, going to shrink that M0 space. So where will we be in five years? Uh, you know, I think that what we're looking at now is, is earlier better. Uh, as we can see uh, in the hormone-sensitive uh, metastatic prostate cancer, we've had uh, three trials that have given us a new standard of care uh, for uh, using either abiraterone or, or chemotherapy or docetaxel. Uh, and then, uh, as uh, Dr. Sweeney mentioned before, there are other trials in progress, the Enzymet, Arches, Titan, and Aerosins, all looking at using uh, either enzalutamide, apalutamide, or even uh, uh, darolutamide in the uh, hormone-sensitive setting. And we have a study looking at active surveillance. Uh, so that uh, they're looking at the ENACT trial is looking at uh, giving patients either their uh, routine active surveillance monitoring versus enzalutamide uh, for one year, and that trial is in progress. And we also are looking at trials with radiation therapy so that high-risk localized or locally advanced patients uh, will be getting uh, ADT, uh, plus, in the Enzarad study, it would be uh, enzalutamide, or in the Atlas study, apalutamide. And um, the also looking at things in biochemical recurrence. The Embark study is looking at using enzalutamide earlier on. It's, uh, there are three arms to that study, looking at uh, whether enzalutamide or uh, ADT or enzalutamide and ADT uh, can be used to prevent progression in uh, biochemical recurrence. Uh, as far as the active surveillance, I did hear the other day that uh, uh, Dendrion announced that they're going to do a pro the ProVent trial, which is going to be looking at using SIPT uh, uh, or ProVenge uh, in patients uh, on active surveillance. So this is what is uh, uh, coming in the future, uh, and I think a lot's going to depend on our genomic and serial biologic uh, profiling of tissue and blood and using biomarkers, predictive biomarkers, uh, combination therapies, 
uh, sequencing and looking at immunotherapies and whether or not uh, things like PD-1s will work after you inflame the tumor um, with something like enzalutamide or radium. PARP inhibitors uh, are a, a next uh, generation of DNA um, uh, uh, treatments that are used in patients who uh, have uh, uh, progressed on chemotherapy and all these other agents we've been using. Uh, and so this is what it uh, looks like for the future. And uh, like, I'd like to uh, take a quote from one of my uh, favorite groups, ZZ Top. They say, everything's going to be all right. The future's so bright, we've got to wear shades. So thank you very much. And, uh, <laughs> so we're going to open it up for questions. Um, so I just wanted to make sure you know, people have this app. And, I know most people probably already know this, but you know, if you click on the bottom handouts, you can actually see all these slides right on the app. So the slides are all available on the app under handouts. And then I would also ask under evaluation, please, uh, before you leave or before you finish the AUA, uh, please do the evaluation for this course and all the courses you attend because the AUA uses these evaluations to determine programming for next year. And so it's very important that uh, the AUA get that information. Yes, sir. Um, question about uh, the docetaxel. Oh, well, would you be so kind as mention um, your name and where you're from? Yeah, or sorry. Eric Weiss, State and Physicians. Uh, I'm actually a urologic oncologist, but to my shame, I've become a proceduralist, and I'm trying to catch up on these things I haven't done for a while. Um, I have a vague perception left over from a long time ago that docetaxel is most valuable in very high-grade cancers. Is that still a discriminating piece of information? Or? So in all honesty, grade, um, when we look in the multivariate analysis, grade doesn't really, is not the most powerful prognostic factor. It's actually the de novo metastatic presentation and the volume of disease. So the rapidity and the rapid growth of the scenario. So most patients who have metastatic disease are those who have high-grade disease anyway. So the answer is to your question is a slowly recurrent Gleason 8 or 9 probably doesn't benefit, but a rapidly progressive Gleason 7, Gleason 8, Gleason 10 um, with high volume to novo metastatic disease is the patient, are the patients who benefit. So it's actually the volume and the timing of the metastasis and hence the basis for the title of my talk, Timing and Volume is the Destiny. So I have a uh, informal audience polling question. Um, Dr. Karsh talked about apalutamide of the, uh, I guess this would only be applicable to the U.S. urologist, but anyone in the room has already done a, treated a patient with apalutamide for M0 prostate cancer? Actually quite a few. Um, Wanted just to follow up with Larry on that, and just uh, from a practical standpoint, the other day in um, one of the advanced podium sessions, um, you know, Eric Small presented the follow-up data. Well, Eric Small and also um, Neil um, uh, sure. Neil Shore, they presented some data on on both the um, Spartan and the Prosper, and a um, couple questions that were at that session that we're, we ought to address here. One is, do you need to do baseline thyroid tests? Um, is the thyroid thing, the, the TSH thing, a, a class effect? That came up. And also, um, 
do you need to do, you know, in practical terms, even though you don't have to do any monitoring, um, do most people do a baseline thyroid test? And well, I don't think that it's not on the label. You don't have to do any uh, thyroid testing. Uh, there were no grade three and four reactions. That's one thing to remember. And these were mainly laboratory. The TSH was elevated. And I think that many of these patients already had some hypothyroid disorders. That's um, so I don't think that um, it's, it's, it's a signal that we need to keep monitoring on these studies. So one, you know, just to be open and honest, so one of the things, so I heard rumblings as we were leaving the room. So Eric made the point that he thought that, that the thyroid issue may be a class effect in this in oral antiandrogens because it hadn't been looked at. And I know um, some of the advocates who were there for enzalutamide were not happy about that statement because they said there's no data. So it's a little bit uh, touchy, but uh, Chris or do you, anyone want to comment on that? I think when we look, we find it. Uh, so like a uh, subclinical entity, as Larry points out. So, and there's a lot of, in patients on placebo who have subclinical hypothyroidism that or low T, elevated TSH, overactive, trying to get the sluggish thyroid gland to work. So I think there's a lot of subclinical, everyday, 70-year-old man hypothyroidism that actually is uh, just being discovered. So bottom line is check it, work with your primary care practitioner, maybe replace it. T4 is not an uncommon medication for patients not on it. So I think just working with your primary care provider and going back to the conversation, some of these M0 CRPC patients can have a very indolent course but we can make them frail because there were more fractures, there were more falls, there were more making a patient older, if you would, with these therapies. So it's medical management. These are not set and forget, just walk them out the door drugs. And that whether it's thyroid issues, whether it's liver function tests, whatever, just do not write for them blithely and thinking it's gonna be easy. Um, on that same note, as far as just the, you, you did a nice job, Larry, of covering the rash and the take-home message that was you gave and also the take-home message in the session the other day that it's basically not a big deal, that these were not serious rashes. And, but I guess, um, so I've treated, I've written three prescriptions so far since February for this drug. And, you know, I really, I, I mentioned it in passing to the patients that at this possibly could happen, but I didn't make a big deal out of it, and I'm not sure if I was doing the, you know, how do you handle it in practical terms? Well, you know, I've, we've got four trials that we're doing with apalutamide, and I did have a few patients that developed rash, um, and it's uh, one patient actually, and they describe um, if it's greater than 30% of the body surface, then it's considered a grade three. Uh, I had one patient on the trial that uh, did develop that, and he did not have itching, he had a generalized maculopapular rash, and I offered to dose reduce, and he said, no, I'm, I think I'm getting benefit from this. I don't want to uh, reduce. Uh, and uh, he was just using some topical moisturizers. And I saw him back just last week, and he still has the rash, but it is, it's, it's, it's less than it was uh, uh, when he first developed it. Um, so. Uh, you know, I think that you have to use your, your judgment. If they have a bad rash, you can reduce the dose. Uh, it's usually four 60-milligram uh, pills. You can reduce it. 
uh, and use topical steroids. Sometimes they need Benadryl if there's itching. Um, and, um, uh, and then uh, in the trial, there were only 4% of those patients required uh, systemic corticosteroids. So any questions, again, any, everything's, uh, if anyone wants to come to the microphone, we'd love to take further questions or comments, and there's no, no bad question. All good. Thank you. I'm Fernando Corquez. I'm from Brazil. Welcome. And thank you. My question is, if you use docetaxel in a patient in the naive setting, in the beginning of the road, down the road when he's uh, castrate resistant, uh, Dr. Sweeney, what do you think, is there any difference if you use docetaxel again, or what, what's the role in, in that setting? So the uh, to re rephrase your question, is there a role for retreating with docetaxel? My answer is, our job is to get as many therapies in as possible, and retreatment with docetaxel is one, but you're balancing treatment burden against clinical benefit, and so I agree with Larry that the first and easier therapies once the PSA is rising on hormone sensitive, uh, after they've been treated for hormone sensitive disease, is an oral anti-androgen. Anti anti That's clear. But if a patient has ra rapidly progressive disease and they've got newly symptomatic progressive metastatic prostate cancer, I would reach for sometimes a cytotoxic first before reaching for an anti-androgen. So um, I actually have gone from ADT docetaxel to abiraterone maybe retreating with enzalutamide if they've had a prolonged response. There are some patients who benefit for enzalutamide after abiraterone. They've still got bone-only disease when given um, radium, and then docetaxel again, and then cabazitaxel, just trying to eke out as much as possible. But if they have rapid progression after ADT and docetaxel, there's no benefit to giving the docetaxel, and I would reach for cabazitaxel in that setting. So it depends on their response and how they tolerated docetaxel as to whether I would actually contemplate giving it again. So it's all about individualizing it to their actual one scenario. There's no right answer for any one patient. There's no one algorithm for all of the patients. There's a right algorithm for the patient based on their response to therapy. Chris, uh, you know, just as far as ARB7, and it's a new test that, that's become commercially available. If a patient is on, starts on Abby in uh, hormone sensitive, and they're starting to fail, would you do an ARB7 on a patient and then try the other oral, or would you just go straight to chemo after they progress on Abby? I, I use the clinical, did they benefit and have they been on abiraterone for a while? Um, and if they, so I never check ARB7, and um, so if they have rapid progression on abiraterone, there's no way I'd reach for enzalutamide. If they have a slow, a great response and their PSA's dribbling upwards, I think it's very reasonable to use it. There's evidence that they have a median time to progression if they've been on abiraterone for six months or longer, for six months time to PSA and eight months to time to clinical progression. So there is something to it, which, and you can just use their response to abiraterone to knowing whether to try the enzalutamide. The St. Gallen's Consensus Conference, the person who was uh, given the topic of arguing in favor of it on the debate couldn't argue in favor of it, so he argued against it. So we had two cons in the debate. That was a bit weak on the, the behalf of the person supposed to uh -huh. argue. And the consensus was no one actually feels like it um, trumps clinical care in 2018. And it's now We're, covered by insurance as a $4,000 test. Yeah, so I, yeah, I find it very difficult to actually 
justify using it. It's a great technology, it's a great idea, but I don't think it um, is something that I deploy. So what I want to do, we have a, just a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that people in the audience get some take-home messages. So very rapid fire. We're going to go back to some of these questions that were bought, brought up. And in honestly, in, in five words or less, or a sentence or less, key highlights. Um, Chris, why don't you, let's just go through these. Again, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, Dr. Sweeney covered that beautifully. Is there any difference between starting a GnRH antagonist versus an LHRH agonist? If a patient has terrible cardiovascular disease, I would probably start with a GnRH antagonist. And I think that's the only clinical situation where I think there's a benefit, or you have to get a rapid disease regression. But beyond the first month in that scenario, I can't justify the discomfort and the monthly dosing. Okay. So bottom line teaching point, uh, what Dr. Sweeney was referring to is there is some retrospective data suggesting that Degarelix may be slightly less cardiotoxic than the agonist. However, that's retrospective. There is a prospective trial that's ongoing addressing that. So you heard his answer, perhaps in someone who has significant cardiac disease, how you define significant cardiac disease is, is not crystal clear, but again, no current level one evidence. Bullet point two, should the patient receive immediate chemotherapy? Only in the high-volume chemo-fit patient, and I present both abiraterone and docetaxel, the pros and cons, and it's surprising how many patients actually come back and say, let's get chemotherapy out of the way and move on. So again, key teaching point, should the patient receive immediate chemotherapy, high-volume disease? Should the patient receive immediate oral androgen synthesis inhibitor, i.e., Abby, and you kind of any final? Larry, what's your, what would be your answer as a urologist who has for giving abiraterone for hormone sensitive versus docetaxel? Uh, well, I like getting rid of the uh, hormone independent clones oh, yeah. uh, first. And uh, it's six cycles, you get it out of the way. Uh, you know, being on Abby for, it's, it's infinite, really. I mean, it's not infinite, but until they progress, that's going to be a long time. So I like to do that um, and then start, you know, and then wait for progression and then start another agent. And, and so I would agree. I mean, every patient newly diagnosed with M1 hormone sensitive, I am partnering, you know, sending these patients to my medical oncology partners, giving the patient that option to get that six cycles, um, so again, I, we all are in consensus on that. Um, should he receive both chemo and oral uh, androgen synthesis inhibitors? And I think we addressed that. I guess right now the board answer the, would be no, correct? The, the clear cut level evidence is that right. we don't know. So that would be a no. Should he receive prophylactic bone health agents? To prevent yes. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, well, no. If it's hormone sensitive, no. There isn't a trial to show that that um, there's an advantage and of that. So I would I 100% with Larry. If you're going to have a patient on long-term androgen deprivation therapy, I would worry about their osteoporotic risk, but not preventing skeletal cancer-related skeletal-related events. So maybe for osteoporosis management, if they've got low-volume disease, but otherwise, no. So, yeah, so I, I would treat them like anyone that I would start on ADT. And so they're going to get a DEXA scan, uh, well, not in, in the uh, metastatic phase, but, you know, vitamin D, calcium, and um, 
uh, and look at whether or not they're going to need an antiresorptive later. So just to be clear, so the reason I asked this question, and I don't know how it is in other countries, but in the United States, if you think about denosumab, DMAB, as Larry talked about, if you have non-metastatic disease and you're trying to prevent, you know, prevent skeletal-related or prevent or preserve bone health, you would right. use Prolia, which is the 60 milligram DMAB twice a year. But remember, here we're talking about M1, metastatic disease. So if you use denosumab, it would be the 120 milligrams monthly. But you, you, you're hearing a clear consensus that we would not use it at this point in time, uh, I guess mainly because of the risk of uh, osteonecrosis and so forth, and you would wait till they progressed. And there are two studies with zolendroic acid showing no benefit right. in hormone-sensitive. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. okay. So let's go now to, again, bottom line teaching points, uh, non-metastatic CRPC, M0. Uh, what criteria must exist for you to confirm that the patient has non-metastatic CRPC? I'll just Real quickly, uh, no METs, continuous ADT, T-level castrate. You have to have those criteria. If you follow the, the trial guidelines for PROSPER and SPARTAN, you would also use a PSA doubling time less than 10 months. However, when the FDA, in the United States at least, when the FDA approved uh, Erlita, which is apalutamide, they did not specify that you had to have that 10-month doubling time to prescribe the product. How important is early treatment for this patient? Dr. Karsh did a great job. Again, what are you risking? Earlier bone metastasis. So these drugs in this space are preventing, or improving metastasis-free survival by about two years. And so that was the basis for the US FDA approval. Currently, we do not have overall survival on either enzalutamide or apalutamide in the M0 setting, although it's trending to significance, but we don't, if you're yeah. a purist and yeah. only want to treat based on overall survival, you don't have it yet. Right. Any it's final the, comment the, on that? The data is not mature yet. There is a separation in about 16 months. It's, uh, it's a little narrow, but we're going to have to wait and see. And then what are the potential implications for delayed treatment? Obviously, bone metastasis. But Dr. Sweeney made a good point that you still have to do a risk-benefit analysis because there are, you know, these drugs are not, it's not a free lunch. There are risks of side effects that you have to talk to patients about. Finally, the M1 CRPC discussion questions. Um, I'll go back to Dr. Uh, well, both Dr. Sweeney and Karsh will just alternate. What is the best initial treatment, immunotherapy versus oral antigen synthesis inhibitor? Again, there's no clear-cut answer. I would use immunotherapy if the patient is asymptomatic and has uh, and does not have visceral mets, has a very good performance status. I would get that on board first and then move on. Uh, and that's I'm a proponent of immunotherapy. So. Any novel blood tissue biomarkers to inform initial decisions? I think you guys discussed that. The bottom line take-home message was no. Currently, how do they respond to their prior therapy? It's so powerful. Okay. Any consideration of initial chemotherapy? Again, Chris, just bottom line, who would be the M1, just in practical terms, who would be the M1 guy with CRPC that you would say, let's pull the trigger for docetaxel? Someone who's chemofit and symptomatic and had a poor response to their ADT. Okay. Um, 
How often should this patient be followed? Uh, I do every three months. That's how often we're following our patients. Even M1 CRPC? CRPC. Um, Depends how they respond to the therapy. If they're having a great response, you pull off the throttle. If they're having a poor response, you see them and image them more frequently. So in general, every one to three months, one, two, or three months, we heard, um, does, does the patient need periodic routine imaging or just PSA? I would do PSA and consider imaging on uh, PSA rises or symptom changes uh, that are significant. At the very least, I do it every six months, but sometimes if they're having a poor response with the period, like Larry does, risk-based assessment. Poor response, more frequently. Great response, less frequently. Very good. We are out of time, folks. Thank you so much for attending. Hope you enjoy the rest of the AUA. Thanks so much to these great faculty. Thank you.